hello and welcome to the Good Catholic Women After Dark podcast. I'm Tara. Um, I've been on the podcast before. I'm from Wisconsin. I'm married. I have four kids and I teach fifth grade um, in a Catholic school. Joined by my friend Anne Marie. Hello. Hi, guys. I'm Anne Marie. Um, and I'm uh, from Jersey. Not married. I don't have four kids right now. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Hello. All right. So the topic we're covering this evening has a content warning. Tonight, we will be talking about substance abuse, addiction, incarceration, and death. If you don't feel like you can handle the episode, we totally get it. It's hard stuff. Feel free to join us next week. So with that said, I I think we're ready to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anne-Marie, you want to start? Yeah, sure. This is uh, definitely a heavy topic for the two of us. Um, and I guess, you know, at different stages of our life, too, and affecting different people in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, don't mind me if you hear a plane flying over my head. I live like 15 minutes away from, from Newark Airport in New Jersey. So we just got used to the airplane noise around uh, going above our heads. Uh, so, um, yeah, so this is involving uh, my parents. Um and it's tough. It's tough. Uh, but I would say that as a mid-20-year-old, my perspective of, of the situation has changed. And I definitely think that going through college and, and coming to understand substance abuse and coming to understand addiction, um, it helped me to, uh, I don't know, like humanize my family a little bit more. So, you know, I... I just want to, you know, put it out there that like my, that, that I've forgiven my parents and I've forgiven their mm-hmm. choices. Um, even though at the time and growing up there, it, 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 it was even very difficult to figure out how to even figure out what the first step to forgiveness would be, um, or even how to conceptualize that. Um, so I, I also talked to um, classes back at my university about this, about my experience. So this isn't really new to, like, this isn't the first time that I'm telling my story to the public. Um, But I'm not going to, you know, say, like, my sister's names or anything. So I have a younger sister. She's four years younger than I am. And uh, so it's just me and her. And uh, my parents are not married, but they're together. And they've been monogamous to each other um, for almost 30 years. Um, so I knew about my parents' substance abuse and addiction, uh, since I'm a tot. So I really knew about, um, what was going on with them since, since I was a kid. And the rationale behind that is that my dad didn't want to hide what was, what he was doing. And my mom for, for my mom, um, she she's an alcoholic she's a recovering alcoholic so it was just in my face and it was just something that she struggled with visibly um so my dad uh was uh selling drugs in the house and using um and whenever somebody has that idea in their mind of like someone who um sells drugs like you think of like law and order or you think of like mm-hmm. like a big wig <clears throat> like especially in new jersey like you think of like people like who are just like hot shots um like selling uh drugs but for my dad it was more of a um uh, like a close circle of friends, um, yep. who, who he was, uh, distributing to and, and, uh, you know, using with, and my dad is also an alcoholic. So, you know, when, when I was growing up, it was, I really didn't see him intoxicated as much as I saw him using. And, um, whenever the, the kids would come over of the people who, who were, um, purchasing for my dad, like I was friends with them. So like we would kind of, be in uh like in the living room with each other and they didn't know about their parents but I knew what they were there for so if if ever they needed like treats or like food or water or anything I would go into the kitchen because that's where my dad would be with everybody with all the adults and um 
like I I would like I was the one who knew about everything but they didn't know what I knew um but I remember um my dad wanting to be open with me because he didn't want to hide anything from me and like that's what he would say to me that like he never wanted to keep secrets from, from me like how everyone how all the other parents kept secrets from their kids but it's interesting because as I was growing up you would think because of like what they teach you in school and like what you learn in college that my father's substance abuse would have affected me more but I feel as though that my mother's substance my my mother's alcoholism affected me more when I was growing up and the mm-hmm. re- and the reason being is because like my dad when I when I knew him to be using like he wasn't like mean you know like he was just kind of like a really chill <laughs> like a really chill drug sure. user you know what I mean if like that makes any sense like he wasn't violent and like he wasn't like mean or or vicious like he was just like a really chill person whenever he used and I had even said like uh years later you know as an adult I I would say to my dad like you're just the same, you know, like, like my dad's been sober for 10 years now, but like, like, I, like, that's you're, great. You're exactly the same, you know? <laughs> so, so, yeah. um, but my mom and I would butt heads a lot, unfortunately. And, you know, we like, cause my mom was drinking a lot and drinking to excess and drinking frequently. Um, so that definitely affected me more. Than, than than my father's use and uh, as I mentioned my sister is um, four years younger than me and uh, my sister grew up with a learning disability so um, my my mom didn't really take her anger out on my sister because of that so so it was more so directed at me with our arguments um, so I definitely had more of a have, had more difficulty with my mom. So fast forward a couple of years, I remember um, when I was about maybe about like eight years old, I'm I'm now learning that like uh, what my dad is doing is wrong because of like the D.A.R.E. program and, oh my gosh, you know, so uh, it's so hard because like, like I'm a kid who is harboring a secret that like I'm not allowed to tell anybody. And, like, mm-hmm. no kids are coming over to my house. None of my friends from school are coming over to my house. So, like, I was the weird girl in school because, like, I didn't have any friends come over. I didn't sleep over anybody's house. And, like, I also knew what my father was doing was wrong. And I couldn't talk to anybody about it. So it was it was really tough growing up. And I remember saying to my dad, um, we were in our old home. And I said to my dad, um, by my 16th birthday please give me the present of stopping this life. And he said, okay, honey. So, but life went on and uh, things didn't stop until it was like about 14. Um, it was the summer before my, my sophomore year of college. I'm sorry, whoa, no, not college. My sophomore year of high school um, that um, me and my sister uh, were, were, were removed from the home um, because my father was arrested because someone had had told what what my father was doing and I wasn't allowed to live at home with my parents anymore. So uh, me and my sister were in a foster home for for about a week or two. Um, And then we permanently went to live with my grandmother. And uh, my dad was away for uh, okay, so he went like he formally was in uh, went to prison uh, my sophomore year of of, of high school. So that was April, 2010. He left, no, no, I'm sorry, June, 2010. And he didn't come home until May, 2013. And my dad, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. So we would go and visit him in the prison. Um, and then, like he went to halfway house and like, he was very well behaved when he was away. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, like my mom, I got a handle on on her um drinking and you know she's she's pretty good now um actually she's doing really great um and as I said that my dad has been home now since 2013 um but it's always been tough you know like I had honestly uh pardon me I, I I was just telling Tara how um I just before I hopped on here you know uh I 
I had an argument with my dad about it, you know, that how, like, unfortunately, he's not working at the time. And um, he hasn't worked since, you know, everything happened. And he wasn't really working, if you know what I mean. Um, Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's still something that affects, you know, and it's still something that is, like you, you even though like the time was was served and everyone is sober and you know sure it, it's still the like the effects of the actions have a ripple effect and mm-hmm. sometimes like just because that time passed it doesn't mean that everything is returned back to normal because there is no normal anymore you know what I mean right. yeah so it's but I say that it's it's such a miracle that me and my sister turned out the way that we did because like you know when I was in college I I studied child advocacy and policy and like this is all we learned about really is like the kids like who have a recidivism effect to them because of what their parents did so then they have a higher statistic to use and like to go down the path that like their parents did and like thank god you know truly by the grace of god that that never happened um you know what do you think helped you be so resilient to this oh man um I would say a few things um I'm very thankful for the family that I have so like my my grandmother my paternal grandmother um has always been a support you know financially and like like moral support and she she's been like a second mom to to me and my sister and you know, so she was there for us and, you know, my father's sister as well. She was, you know, our rock um, and always there, always supportive. And I would even say that, like, the guidance counselors at school when I was going through this, because I was in high school at the time. So, yeah, like, the support that I was receiving from from my guidance counselors and, like, the drop-in center, um, uh, that was, like, the school psychologist, um, just like providing me the support and like telling me exactly what you said, like you have this resilience and you have the power yeah. to like push through it. Um, I would say that like at the time when I was in high school, I had like, like a baby faith. So like I had like youth group faith. So like, you know, like very immature or like whatever, mm-hmm. you know, your faith level is when you're in in high school. But I think that my my forgiveness period really kicked in when I was in college and I was very involved in the Newman Catholic Center when I was in college and focus and by me like really nose diving into you know my faith there and working through these wounds I remember when I was in in adoration uh, uh, when, when I first would go to adoration my freshman year of college because this is when my dad was was coming home I was I I remember like I couldn't even sit in adoration for like 10 minutes because I would just weep so much and I knew that like there was something in adoration that was like healing me and like resurfacing these wounds that like I pushed so far down that I didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about and I didn't want to address. I didn't want to go to therapy for, but like all those times that I would go to the adoration chapel week after week after week, like something was changing in my heart and like something was, was giving me the grace to be resilient, to forgive and like to move forward and to understand. And and, and like classes too, uh, in child advocacy, like I was able to, as time went on, like learning what the addiction is and why people make these decisions while they're using. And it really has nothing to do with like wanting to, well, certain times I should say, like, like there's no malice behind it when you're addicted, when you have an addiction, like, like your brain chemistry is just so different, you know, like it's an illness. Um, So it helped me to like humanize my parents and, Mm -hmm. you know, just to, you know, move forward and, you know, establish a better relationship with them, you know? Yeah. But so much for a kid to take in. Humanizing that humanizing component is really, really helpful for those who are trying to live, you know, with or 
in the vicinity of someone with an oh addiction. My gosh. Absolutely. Especially when, like, how much more difficult it is when the person is actively using and yeah. you are trying to live your day to day and the person might be acting out or they're high yeah. or they're drinking again or they have their, their rage again. And, like, you have to, like, in that moment, how difficult it is to see see them and not to see their addiction when all you see yeah. is their addiction screaming at you. Yes. You know, and how hard that is too, because like I can understand and like coming from the perspective now of like being an adult and living with, with, with parents in recovery. Um, like I can't imagine how much more difficult it would be being an adult and having a fully formed brain and like trying to rationalize with an irrational person um oh like rationalizing with someone like who is not in the right state of mind when like all you want to do is just sit with them and say like why are you doing the things that you're doing and can't you see that like Mm -hmm. how you're acting is hurting the family is hurting yourself it's hurting you know it's hurting me you know? Yeah. Yeah. How difficult it is. How is it affecting you at this point in your life? Cause I know that you have uh, like a similar situation, but it, but it's actually, a, you know, definitely more difficult. Well, you did such a good job of kind of like, I can tell you've spoken more about this cause you did such a good job of mm. nicely wrapping this up. So mm. I'm, I'm going to try. Absolutely, Tara. Uh, Absolutely. So, um, I guess I'll start with my dad. He has been in recovery for almost five, almost six years, wow. five and a half years. That's um, he started with, he had some pretty serious injuries from, um, sports injuries and mm. from a car accident. And, um, some pretty messed up back issues. So, you know, the doctors just kept on prescribing him, um, more Oxycontin and more Mm. Oxycontin, um, to the point where he just became very thoroughly addicted to it. Mm. Um, so it was really rough. Um, my dad is a very, very, very smart man. He's a very, very independent mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. And I think that allowed him to hide the level of his addiction. For oh, a while sure. Yeah. Because he could. I mean, he maintained yeah. a really good job. Functioning addicts. Out- totally. To the outside yeah. world, he looked like there was nothing wrong. But, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you can't keep up that forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of, there was that. And... So then my little brother, I'm still kind of trying to piece all the parts together. But from what I know is he started in high school stealing my dad's prescription pain meds. Um, How much younger was your brother too? He was four years younger than me. So he started taking my dad's prescription pain meds whenever he could. Um, And, you know, I knew like he smoked weed in high school, but... I mean, I guess I'm not saying that's like a good mm-hmm. thing to do, but it wasn't like super like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it didn't feel like super nice. scary thing. Absolutely. Um, but somehow over time, um, he started using a lot of steroids for oh. bodybuilding. Okay. Um, and then... He had pretty much untreated ADHD. Mm, so mm-hmm. he started um, getting medication for that illegally. Mm. Um, he couldn't sleep. So he would slowly went in from the Oxycontin to the heroin and then mm. the cocaine. One to sleep, one to wake up. And then, you know, go days and days and days without sleeping on cocaine. And my brother was very much somebody, anything he was going to do, he would do to the extreme. 
Okay. Yeah. Like there was never like the middle ground. There was no middle ground with him in any portion of his life. So there wasn't like, I'm going to lift weights to get in better shape. Mm. It was, I'm going to get down to the bare minimum body fat. I can use steroids and get bulked. Mm. That was like, that was just who he was. A very addictive mentality from, from, from that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, not like, the, le- the amounts of drugs he would do was just astronomical. Wow. Okay. It was always pushing the limits of how much could he do. Mm-hmm. And from the best of my knowledge, he wasn't someone who did drugs socially. Okay. Um, it was very much a private thing. I think, you know, he had wow. friends who knew, but overall, um, a lot of his friends had no idea. But all of a sudden they saw these huge drastic changes in him. Because like personality went, changes, you mean? Oh my gosh, the personality changes were just crazy. Hmm. Um, he went from a very functional addict to a complete train wreck in a matter of months. My goodness. So I think, you know, there was a lot of um, ambulance calls, him oh. saying he was getting better, um, was he at living at point, home at this time or no? Not and off. He never really was able to live on his own, even before he was on drugs. Right, right, he was right. He failure to launch kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, he, and a lot of it was he just legit loved my parents. Yeah. Like, he was happy eating toast with my mom, like, yeah. all the time. That was who he was. Yeah. Um, but then it got really bad. So... I think it all really came to head when, um, like, there was a time my mom had me clean out his bedroom because she's like, well, we'll just get all the drugs out. I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I'll help you. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, Amory, the things we found, like, I, I can't. Like, it was insanity. How old was he at this time? 24. Yeah. And then. How uh, heartbreaking for your mom, too, like, to have this, oh, like, her or for a child, you know, to witness you know, that in your child. I think she was doing the best she could with what she knew. Yeah. But I think she also got a little bit into the protective mode. Like she wanted to keep him from getting any real consequences. Right. Um, was she also this- dealing with your father at this time? Like was your father sober at this point or this was point, your father? My, so at this point, my dad was sober. Okay. Yeah. At this point he was sober. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, he's done such an amazing job with his recovery and he mm-hmm. helps other people now, yeah, but, um, you know, I think she wanted to protect him from facing any really negative right, consequences from right, the actions. Right. Um, but it kind of, you know, that never works. Right. So, um, I think it really all came to head one day when my, and like, the, I seriously, I can't even make this shit up. Like mm-hmm. it was just insanity. Um, my dad was scheduled for a hip replacement, so pretty big surgery. Right. Um, I went to their house in the morning, and my mom, obviously she was frazzled, worried about my dad, and my brother was high. So I went in the house, and I saw him, and he was ridiculous. He was, like, mm. telling me there was bugs climbing on him oh, that weren't there. He was hallucinating. And I'm like... Randy, there's no bugs. It's the drugs. Like, I don't, it's not bugs. It's your drugs. I, I know. I know. Like big yeah. sister thing. Like I'm just like, I, yeah. I can't deal with this right now. I gotta get. We gotta get my dad to the hospital. Yeah. So we get to the hospital. My dad's back in pre-op. You know, like waiting and like they have like the thing. It's, I swear, it's like an airport, like where you yeah. watch the numbers to see mm-hmm. where they are in mm-hmm. the surgery process. Mm-hmm. And my mom gets a call from the sheriff department. So my brother, apparently I had left my car in the driveway and I took my mom's car with her to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So he thought he had seen um, somebody breaking into my car. He hallucinated it. And he was also super into guns. So like, oh, wow. Which, you know, that's perfect storm. So, oh, my gosh. Feeling that he is being the helpful brother calls 911 to get someone to come get the guy breaking into my car who doesn't exist. 
Right. Um, right. So then they show up and he answers the door with his gun. <gasps> which, you know. Oh, my gosh. And his very angry pit bull. Oh, my gosh. So, long story short, the dog ends up getting tased because the dog's panicking. Oh she, she doesn't know what's going on. Um, they are able to talk him into putting his gun down and they take him into the same hospital where my dad's having surgery oh a two for one deal right so I'm like okay I'm like, I'm just like my, mom, my poor mom like yeah. she's pissed at my brother because yeah. I mean you know it's, it's it's frustrating Yeah. so she's pissed at him my dad's in surgery I'm like you know what mom just stay with dad I'm gonna go take care of Randy mm-hmm. so the sheriff's like, he doesn't want to see you. I'm like, yeah, well, what would happen if Too bad. <laughs> and she's like, I'm not going to stop you from just showing up. Right, right. So I go back there, and he starts crying and holding my hand. And I, you know, we got through it. We ended up, he, um, he was taken into custody and into forced mm-hmm. rehabilitation. Yeah. Um, so it, it was just an insane day. And then I remember afterwards, like, it was a Catholic hospital, so I'm like, I, I just need to go to the chap. Like, mm. after them put him in a police van and take him away at the end of all this, like, I was just, I was just completely overwhelmed with what, sure. what just happened. So I'm like, I'm going to go to the chapel. And I remember going there and just feeling so disappointed that there was, like, there was mm. no universe there. Like, yeah, the chapel, but I'm like, oh. Where is Jesus? <laughs> I know, I'm like, I need Jesus right now. Yeah. Um. So he ended up getting clean for like a couple months and, you know, there was that glimmer of, oh my gosh, my brother's back. Like, yeah, like you could see him back again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at some point he got back involved with this woman who is now, she has died herself now. Oh, who was wow. bad news. And I don't know what went down there, but um, I have a lot of theories, but I'll have to ask God maybe someday. Yeah. Uh, they found him dead, so we're not totally sure what the circumstances were. Um, wow. Sorry, there's my dog. Hi, doggy. Hello, Papo. Sorry, my dog. No, you're fine. Um, so, um, we don't know exactly what happened. There was tra- There was drugs in his system. Um... Uh, there was a lot of damage. It, it seemed like a lot of what happened, there was so much damage from the steroids and the drugs and mm-hmm. everything that went down. So we know he was using again, but um, it's hard to classify it as a true overdose because it wasn't like the levels that one would expect in an overdose. Also, you have to keep in mind, because he was sober for so many, for for how many months, you know, and depending on what, what he did, and like, what the level was that he used, and like, to what extreme he used it, um, it completely um, shocks your system, because when you're using over a prolonged period of time, your, your, um, what's it called? What's it called? Um, uh, oh, my gosh. I know, I'm trying to think what's the best word for it. Oh, and, and I'm your tolerance for the drug. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes, your tolerance. As you just texted us saying tolerance. Thank you, Lizzie. Um, your tolerance for the drug um, is, is pretty high, you know, because yes. like you're, you're using it every day or like twice a day, three times a day. But when you're clean for such a long period of time and you go back to what you were using before, it shocks your system. You know, yeah, uh, unfortunately, yeah, and you know, some of it they said like his bones and his brain, like his bones and his heart, like they didn't look like a 25 year old man, he had just done so much wow. damage to them. My goodness, how what now? Who like did you find him? Did your mom find him? Like, what was that? So what, what happened like? is, I don't know, can you hear me? My phone's doing a thing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. So um, the woman who he was seeing, who was also, I mean, 
not the kind of person he should have been with while in recovery by any means. Um, She claims that they had gotten in a fight that morning that she had taken his car and left for the day, came back to his apartment and found him dead and called 911. I don't know about how much of that I believe. Yeah. It at that point. Can you repeat that one more time? Sure. Um, sorry, Considering my, what? My app is not working quite right. Okay. Okay. That's not a problem. Do your thing. So um, I'm not sure how much of I believe of her story. Mm-hmm. Considering that when she came back, she had his credit card in her wallet. Oh. And um, oh, his wow. car had been parked real crazy. Hmm. So. I, I, I'm not exactly 100% sure yeah. what the circumstances were, but yeah. she called the police and then they notified us. So it's it's been a, you know, a rough nearly four years and I miss him so much. But, um, you know, like you had said, Anne-Marie, with the whole forgiveness thing, I'm I'm still, I'm working on the forgiveness still, I think. So, uh, so the last four years have been, it'll be four years this October. Um, they have Mm. been a challenge in many ways. Um, I think the thing that really struck me at first is obviously my parents were a mess. Yeah. Which, you know, they lost their child, of course. And it was, you know, just me and him. So I felt very much like it was my responsibility to have to be the strong one and pull everything together. Mm. So, um, you know, I just remember I had... Older um, sister syndrome. Oh, so much. Mm -hmm. Um, I had just gotten into the car from grocery shopping like 8 o'clock at night with three kids and my cousin because we're grocery shopping buddies. And, you know, I'm driving in my car and all of a sudden I have like five missed calls from my mom and like, mm-hmm. my, I throw the phone at my cousin. I'm like, call my mom. Yeah. So she calls her and then all of a sudden, I mean, my poor cousin, yeah. you know, my mom's sitting there, Randy's dead. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's not funny, but like, poor Dina. Like, yeah, Dina, damn not, it. Oh my goodness. That's what she expected. So she like, poor thing. She's like, wait, what, what, what's going on? So I'm like, okay. It's fine. Um, I'm going to go home. Dina's going to hang out with the kids. Mm. I will be at your house in 45 minutes. Don't panic. Like, I just, you know, I very much went into just get her done mode for several days. Yeah. So it all, you know. How is it like day to day now? Like, I understand that it's been some time that's passed, but like, Mm -hmm. I mean, like it, like, I can imagine that sometimes, like, you, it it feels like a phantom. Like, you know, like, when somebody loses their limb, like, sometimes, yes. like, like, let's say I, I lost my, like, my, my left leg from the hip down or, like, from the knee down. Yeah. Like, I'll feel pain or, like, an itch in my toe or, or in my foot, you know, I'm not referring to Randy as a foot, um, but, like... No, I feel like, you, you know what I mean? Like, part of you is... Just, yeah, but, like, yeah, but it should still like be there. you still feel, like, like, when you go to your folks' house, you know, like, expecting to see him there. Like, how, how have you been able to, like, what has this coping process been for you this grief process and you know like especially because this wasn't from like a traditional illness you know or like like old age you know this was like a young a young person like your kid brother you know so yeah what what's that like for you you know I think the weirdest thing or is like for you not was because it's everyday grief it yeah it still does go on um I felt like, especially as I'm trying to pull together his funeral mm. and call his friends and stuff um, and deal with his apartment complex, because he had been on his own for like three weeks prior to his death. Um, and they were the worst. Mm. Seriously, the worst. 
like dealing with all of that craziness, I just kept wanting to call him on the phone <laughs> and be like, oh my gosh, Randy, you are not going to believe the shit show I'm dealing with. Yeah. So I think like that was hard because like, I just wanted to tell him like, you, you got to hear that. Yeah. Um, and I had that feeling for a long time where I just wanted to call him and tell him like how weird things were. Mm. Um, and it, you know, my kids were, were so sad because they loved him very, very much. How old were they when he passed? My oldest was in second grade and, um, she handled it very, very well. She was very, very close with him, Mm. but it's not like, I mean, obviously it was a shock, but I didn't hide from my kids that uncle Randy was sick. Yeah. You know, they they knew what was going on because obviously I'd be leaving at random hours of the day to try to go deal with him prior. Right, right. So, you know, they knew. So they were eight, four and two, no, excuse me, eight, um, almost seven, four and two. Wow. So that was hard. Um, you know, there are days where I'm totally fine. There are days when I think I'm fine and then I find out I'm not fine and then mm. I'm embarrassed and I'm crying in front of strangers. Right. Um, which is so, you know, you know, it's, I know I shouldn't be silly about it, but I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me because I thought I was fine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's just, I think I still struggle talking with my parents about yeah. his death because I still feel like I have to be the strong one for them. I can understand that. I can understand that. Yeah. So you, to your parents to talk with you about the Randy still? Yes, they do. And I try. It takes a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of effort on my part to have those conversations with them. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I don't know, it's just hard to talk to them for some reason about it, I guess. Sure. sure. I don't know. I feel like I have to be very strong for them because it's, it's a strange dynamic because it, it, as I said, older sister syndrome um, oh, it's a thing. is such a thing. And unfortunately, like I was just facing this, this evening with, um, with a family issue that like the moment that we show weakness or the moment that we have, um, we have to like, express our needs or our feelings or like we we just crack uh we we think oh this is exactly why I don't crack ever because now it's an issue and now I just like I I just totally regret ever like showing emotion because of this and I I I just want to say to the listeners we're not recommending that you do this this is just an older sister syndrome and if you are an older sibling and you experience this or or you're an only child or you're just who you are uh it's a thing and it's it's what people deal with and it's so frustrating um but I can understand especially in this situation to Tara because you know he's your brother you know Mm -hmm. and obviously the person the two people that you want comfort from the most besides your husband is is your parents right like right. like the two people who just know you the most uh, but it's just so freaking tough to mm-hmm. get comfort you know it's interesting okay so um my mind's going a couple places i remember um my chaplain in college um had lost his father Um, and it was a pretty sudden, uh, passing and around the same time, his best friend, who is also a priest lost, uh, a a parent or, or two parents. And I remember talking with, with, with my chaplain and he said, um, in that moment we had said to each other that we cannot be each other's support at that time because we were both going through something that was so sensitive that like we couldn't be the person that each other relies on and like yeah. leans on because like we're both so raw at this point. Yeah. And yeah. When, you know what I mean? When like all you want to do is lean on the person who you trust the most yeah. during moments. Um, and I think that that's why 
in these situations, um, like when, when you're especially facing something that's so unique, like a family member who's suffering with addiction, like Mm -hmm. you want to lean on somebody who understands your struggle and like somebody who's also been through it or is going through it. But like to a certain extent, like it's so hard because like they're also going through it and like they also have, you know what I mean? So, I mean, did you ever see anybody to like talk through what was going on with, with your brother or, or did, or, or did you ever like see somebody after his passing to kind of work through what what was going on. Oh, are you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm oh, here. Sorry, I did the thing. No, um, no I did not. Mm. Um, honestly, I feel like I'm at a pretty okay place. Mm. Um, I think it's really good to have those people there. Yeah. But um, my husband. Yeah, that's right. Amazing rock for me through all of this yeah that's right that's right um more so than I think I could have ever imagined and that's really helped me through oh, that's another check-in James's <laughs> oh he's such a good man I mean and you know the hardest thing he had to do was when he got the call from my mom he knew before I did oh um, man because I wasn't answering the phone because I was in the grocery store and I had my phone on silent and right. I was at work. So mm. yeah, he left and picked up my dad from work and brought him back home to my mom's house. Cause obviously my dad was in no shape to drive. Um, right. And I just, I think, Oh my gosh. Like when we said our wedding vows, he was not thinking about, Picking yes. up his father-in-law from work after he finds out that his son died. Like, my goodness, I just felt so bad for him at that part mm. because that—that's not a position anybody wants to be in. I can imagine, dude. Wow, and and how fortunate you know you were that you had you know your husband who was so supportive and like yeah I forgot man like like you were married at the time so like you had James to like really walk you through all of this like what a godsend yeah what a godsend yeah did you ever um during your brother's addiction and like his his journey like were 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 there ever moments like where there was combat between the two of you so there's a point where like a couple I don't know maybe more than it was maybe about a month or so before he passed where you know I I felt like he was starting to backslide from like the recovery Mm. he was supposed to be on and I'm like, dude, where do you see yourself in a year? And he's like, I just want to be alive. Yeah. And prior to that, he'd been arguing with me about how fine he was. And so... I'm like, okay, people who are fine have bigger goals than just being alive in a year. Right. Like, that right. was the point where, like, we really were, like, trying to get that to him. So, I mean, I think a lot of it was arguing over me just being pissed and not knowing how to deal with somebody who's addicted and him being addicted and trying to convince me he was fine because he was also always trying to protect me from his addiction. Wow. Right. Like he probably didn't want you to see that, that side of him, you know, like he he didn't want you in that place, you know, to see, to see that like probably because also like you had your own family right and like yeah he didn't want to just he didn't want to let you into that place yeah and you know like in the week following following up to his death um he he was starting to backslide really bad Mm. and there was some big issues with the woman he was seeing and I had told my mom you know this is bad and he can't be around the kids right now. Wow. Yeah. Because I mean, he, it, he was not a safe person to be around my kids, obviously. Yeah. And I know she told him that and he was felt very betrayed by me. So, you know, I still have a little bit of that guilt that he was feeling betrayed by me at that point, mm-hmm. but I had to set up that boundary, obviously. Well, sure. Absolutely. And I think that in hindsight, 
you you have to know that 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 could have been also the addiction talking. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. You know, sure. so it, so I, I but, but I can understand because he's your brother and like you know him for for his whole life. You know, like how how hard hearing that must have been and uh, things that are said when a person is under the influence uh, is so hard to hear because like there's like oh come on like I just want you to see things logically right now as to like why things are the way that they are you know or like right. you know what I mean yes but they can't understand things yeah the way a normal functioning adult would like yeah they, they can't yeah there are a couple of things here that you know I I have fortunately come to see by one my studies and also by me uh me trying to figure out like how to forgive and like trying to rational like just trying to understand the situation and like moving forward and with like my life with with my parents or or just people who are using in general um I I think that um the first is that one you can't rationalize with someone who's irrationally thinking um and and it's such a hard pill to swallow um so I think it's important to keep a few things in mind when, you know, if you're a person who is living with someone or is in relationship with someone or if your parent or whoever is around you is is under the influence or who has an addiction or if you're trying to learn how to forgive someone who has passed or, or is in recovery from their addiction, you know, just some things to keep in mind, um, just for your own peace of mind. So, you know, the first is uh, really knowing that their addiction is not your fault. And Mm -hmm. it is so, and it's so cliche. And I know that it's something that we all say because we think that it just is a feel good and to make everybody feel better. But me using has nothing to do with another person. It is all about what I'm feeling and what's going on with me. So the person in your life who is using, it's not your fault. It, it, it frankly, it has nothing to do with you. It, it's really about that. Them. I think in that same mindset, mm. just as much as them using is not about you. Mm. It is not your responsibility. Yes. Yes, because a person is only going to be ready to change when they're ready. Yes. I remember, as I mentioned, when I was eight years old, me pleading with my dad, Dad, when are you going to stop? When are we going to be normal again? When are you going to work again? Stop doing this. And it honestly, like, it, it unfortunately took a, a, a rock. I, I, I just burped. Sorry. I'm sorry if the audio just picked that up, but yeah. <laughs> some comic relief here. Thank, thank you, Lord. Um, but uh, I, like, it, it, it wasn't because of me that he stopped. It was because he was in jail that he had to stop using. Right. You know, so like, not even because of his daughter. Not even like for my mom. You know, she was a different story. But a person is going to stop using when it's up to them. You know, like when they're serious about them wanting to stop using, you know. And, you know, them not being able to stop even for you. Yes. Is not dependent on their love for you. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I just said that like a like a Wisconsiner. Absolutely. Did you hear me? (laughs) Did I do a good job? Did I I do a good job? Okay, great. Great. Wonderful. (laughs) Um, and I think that's just for your own peace of mind, know that, that just because, you know, this person in your life made these choices or is making these choices, it does not hinder their love for you. Also, um, 
it is so important to separate the addiction from the person because they are two separate things, two separate entities. The addiction is not them. What they say when they're under the influence is not them. They're not defined by their addiction. And even one step further, their addiction is an illness. And that is such a, a scandalizing thing to say. It is something Mm -hmm. that is so controversial in our society because people think that addiction is a choice. Um, But you know what, if, if I'm honest with you, if I take, like, I remember when I had uh, my wisdom teeth removed, they gave me Vicodin and girl, I will never take Vicodin ever again. I hate Vicodin. It feels like it makes me feel like shit. I I was vomiting. It was just a terrible situation. But, and, but if I had the unfortunate addiction illness, I know that I would have become addicted to Vicodin and to painkillers, you know? So like, it's so easy to do. Yes. But I just, like addiction is not a choice is what I'm saying. Like sure that there are like stumble along factors and there are factors as to why people become addicted. And like, you can look at the case studies as to why somebody becomes addicted and there are so many correlations and, causations we understand that but you know to to remove the stigma from your loved one to not say like oh well well they're they're just you know doing this because they're a terrible person or because they're just a, a bum or whatever they are no like inherently first they're they're a child of god and they have mm-hmm. inherent value and they have an inherent worth but also they're your they're your parent they're your brother, they're your loved one, they're the person who you know them to be, and they're sick. And yeah. just to know that, because honestly, I don't know what it is about when when we know that someone is sick, but we have a little bit more sympathy for someone when they're yes. sick, as opposed to them, you know, just being an asshole because they're just being right. an asshole, you know. Um, so I think that that's something really important to to keep in mind. And the last thing, and this is really hard, I know that for the both of us, for us to say, but um, boundaries are really important. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, when you are um, in relationship with, with someone who does have an addiction and boundaries do not equate lack of love. Yes. Um, your boundary, I, I, so I, I, I was listening to another podcast. It's called The Place We Find Ourselves. Um, and we'll link it down below. I highly recommend it. Tara, if you haven't listened to it, it is an amazing podcast. It's a, about a Christian therapist. But he says in his podcast, um, the boundaries is where we find how to properly love. Um, yes. And it's so important that that we we create these boundaries with the people who we love in our lives to have addictions because it's there that we're able to not overextend ourselves not to put our worth in how we serve them and how we love them how we show up for them how 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 many times we pick them up how many times that we bail them out how many times we do this for them and do that for them but it's so imperative that we show our limit and through through this tough love you know providing them resources but we are not their savior and I think that that's so hard, especially for us with o- older sibling syndrome, especially. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, I'm a fixer very much. Oh, and I remember just, you know, feeling that frustration that I couldn't make it better. Mm-hmm. You know, or if I did this, then he wouldn't yes. be, he wouldn't be in the situation that he was in. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it, it, and it sucks to think about this. And but it humiliates us in a beautiful way, but there could have been nothing there there's nothing that we could have done to avoid the addiction, you know yes um, uh, or to there's nothing that we can do except for push them to be the best version of themselves with incredible boundaries because that is just mm-hmm. so important, especially when you have a, when you have a family of your own, but also just for yourself. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, we're here for you guys. Know that we're praying for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we we don't have other, you know, just because because yeah. this has happened to us and um, the addiction that our family has faced is is in the past and and is in recovery. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, because we're speaking about it, it doesn't mean that we are experts on this and it no. doesn't mean that we we know what we're talking about we're just talking from our lived experience but you know this is something that still affects us day to day um it just gets a little bit easier um and other days it gets a lot harder Mm -hmm. um but truly by you know god's grace we're able to persevere and be resilient through it all Mm -hmm. but yeah so Hey, well, those are, Anne-Marie, I'm so glad you said those things because those are some really good closing <laughs> thoughts that help me and I hope they help mm. someone else listening because I know one thing I have learned is just in conversation with people, um, this affects nearly everybody you meet in yeah. some way or another. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are very afraid to talk about it for fear of being judged or fear of how mm. other people will react. Mm-hmm. But I swear, nine out of ten times I talk to someone and they have experience with either, you know, like I've heard a lot of, oh, gosh, my coworker's going through this with their son right now. Or, yeah, my my sister, my brother, my cousin, my ex-boyfriend. Up an epidemic, you know. Oh, my gosh, it's everywhere. So don't be afraid <laughs> to talk to me. You're going to probably encounter some a-holes, but, I mean, overall. Yeah. Yeah. You might be helping somebody else. Absolutely. And, and keep the conversation moving, you know, and it's, it's, it's so important to remove the stigma for yourself and, and also for the people who are going through this, um, so that, you know, you can bring awareness to, um, how to deal with someone who is, who is living with an addiction and, you know, there are resources out there. Um, I went to Al-Anon for some time and, uh, or if if you have children who have a parent who who is an addict, you know, there's Alateen as well. Um, you know, there are a bunch of resources. Oh, so Al-Anon is for people who who um, who have someone in their in their life who is an addict. So it's like a support group. It's kind of like AA, but but for those who are um, who are affected by the addict. Um, and Alateen is is the same thing, but for but for kids. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so there are a bunch of resources available if you need them. All right. Well, I think, do you have any final thoughts, Anne-Marie? No, just persevere and keep kicking ass. That's, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I ask, you know, pray for both of us, yeah. please. And we'll pray for you. Um, if you wouldn't mind, if you're listening to this, say a Hail Mary for my brother's yeah. soul. Um, he didn't have a lot of friends who were necessarily believers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I pray for him all the time. Actually, today I um, kind of had a freak thing. It wasn't really a freak thing, but, you know, whatever. I was at school getting coffee on my prep, and the church secretary, who I don't see very often because she's on the way other side of the building, stopped by. Mm. And I had remembered I'd been wanting a mass set for him. Oh, wow. I got that scheduled today. Wow. I mean, I've so been, been meaning to do this for four so years. Beautiful. I got it so beautiful. Today. So yeah. beautiful. So and beautiful. And Randy, wherever you are, so please yeah, pray for know. us. Yes. Pray yes. For and and pray, pray for Randy. Randy. Absolutely. I appreciate Absolutely. that. So uh, thanks for joining us on this episode of the GCW podcast, um, especially for a heavier episode. If you enjoyed this episode, um, please subscribe wherever you listen. You can also follow our Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash GCW podcast, as well as Twitter and Instagram at GCW podcast. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you all so much. God bless you. And we'll be praying for you. All right. Wonderful. Great job, Tara. Just doing the thing. We just made it through. (gasps) Hey, wonderful. (laughs) 
Yo, but seriously, I, I mean, this is a 